a reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. (laughs) And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon had gone. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, well, we are marching through the book of Mark, and we're in chapter 7. And uh, I'm excited about this passage. It's kind of a weird one, you know, like kind of some strange dialogue. So uh, we'll jump into it in a minute. But before we do, have you ever experienced something in your life that seems harsh or offensive or even mean on the surface, but after further reflection, you realize that underneath, there was like a deep kindness there and even a love. Uh, One thing that as I was thinking about this passage and this question this week, one thing that came into my mind is one of the most formative things that happened to me growing up was actually in high school, and I was named the captain of my high school soccer team, okay? And it, it was, it, the reason it was so formative is because until that moment, I had never thought of myself as like a leader, okay? So my, my buddies you know, on the team, they voted me as, in as the captain, and it's like I, there was this moment like, whoa, like, Really? Are you, are you sure? You know? So it kind of hit me in a new way. What they did was when they, uh, when they voted me in as captain, they sort of unlocked a side of my personality that I've actually really come to enjoy, sort of the, the vision and the, uh, the leading and the strategy and things like that, which now I really enjoy. But at that moment, I didn't even know it existed in me. Um, anyway, on that team, our coach was a wonderful Christian man, Coach Strodeman, and he actually uh, passed far too soon because of stomach cancer. But while he was alive and coaching, uh, there were two things you needed to know about Strodeman, and that was he had a giant and intimidating mustache that hung over the whole front of his mouth, okay? He would take bites of sandwiches, and part of the mustache would always go in. Um, and the second thing was that you couldn't get away with anything with this guy on the field, okay? He was a stickler for detail. So one day at practice, a random Wednesday, we're just doing a simple drill to get practice started, and I'm doing it just as lackluster as everybody else, lazy, you know, just like no form, no focus, no intensity. And he did something that um, was, was, that felt mean and harsh, but I realized later was deeply kind. What he did is he called me out in front of the whole team, okay? He said, everybody stop what you're doing. Let's all go watch Luke do this drill, okay? And um, this sort of thing probably happened all the time, but there's a reason I'm here talking about it like 20 years later, right? There's something about it that lodged in my mind. He wasn't trying to embarrass me. Uh, He wasn't trying to shame me. It wasn't punishment. This is what he was doing. It was a challenge and an invitation all at once, okay? So without saying anything at all, 
he was saying, you want to be the captain, huh? You want to lead this team, huh? Well, here's how you do it. You have to do everything with excellence all the time, right? Whether you feel like it or not, whether you think anybody's watching or not, if you want to help elevate the team, you've got to elevate your game first. It's a challenge that could have been interpreted as harsh or mean, but really, it was deeply kind, what he did was he saw that thing in me that I hadn't even seen myself, this, this ability to lead, this, this sort of untapped personality trait, and he was trying to unleash it, okay? It was actually harsh, but very loving at the same time. Um, but to see it, you kind of had to see past the stern mustache uh, to see and receive the gift. Has there been anything in your life like that? Anything like that that's happened to you, a harsh but deeply loving word or moment. Well, today's passage is that from Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. A woman, a desperate woman, comes to Jesus begging that he help her daughter, and Jesus seems to dismiss her and insult her by calling her a dog all at once, all right? Ouch. Harsh. Rough word. But The question we need to ask is, does that sort of behavior, does that sort of language reflect the Jesus that we've come to know in the Bible? I mean, as we've been charting him through Mark, or or as we've known the character of God throughout the pages of Scripture, is that the kind of thing Jesus does? Is he dismissive? Is he unnecessarily harsh? Or, in every single interaction that Jesus has with someone, is he always being deeply kind and deeply loving? See, he's never dismissive. He's never selfish. He's never indifferent. Even when he's arguing with his adversaries, even when he's confronting the very people that are eventually going to kill him, he's always doing it in a way that's hopeful. And he's trying to compel them to believe. He's trying to um, invite them into grace instead of the world of law that they live in. He even loves his enemies. And so when we come up to strange words that seem unnecessarily insulting from Jesus, uh, we need to keep this character in mind? Might something else be going on here? Below the surface, might there be a deep kindness and even a deep love? I think so. So what I want us to see in this passage is the challenging invitation from Jesus, the faithful answer from this woman, and then the miraculous results of faith. So the challenging invitation. We pick up our story of Jesus' ministry on the heels of his confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes. If you were here last week, you heard that these leaders suffer from a disease called religiosity, and Jesus was trying to diagnose them, all right? Now, these guys, they didn't really like the diagnosis. They didn't get the diagnosis. They're eventually going to bring this confrontation to a head and have Jesus killed, but um, this this is the conversation that Jesus is coming off of in our passage, and if there's one thing you need after going toe-to-toe with these knuckleheads who never are going to get it, no matter how well you, you explain it and how warmly you invite it, it's a vacation. So Jesus, in verse 24, goes on vacation. As far as we know, this is the only time in his ministry when he leaves the nation of Israel, the country of Israel where he lives. Uh, he goes to a region called Tyre and Sidon. It's northwest of Israel. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean. So Jesus is on a beach vacation, okay? You can all go there right now in our minds. Beach vacation. That's what Jesus is looking forward to, some R&R. But even as he goes on vacation, as we've seen before, he just can't get away from the crowds. The people are so compelled by him. 
They follow him everywhere. So he's on beach vacation, and a woman finds out he's in the area. We don't know how she knows of him or where he is, but she comes directly to him. She falls at his feet, and she begs that Jesus would help her little girl who's been possessed by an unclean spirit. Now, to grasp what's about to happen in this interaction, we need to understand who this woman is and what she represents to Jesus. First of all, we learn she's Syrophoenician, which means she's Greek, so she's not a Hebrew. She's an outsider, both ethnically and religiously, to Jesus and his disciples. She's also, obviously, a woman, and in that culture, there are lots of expectations about how men and women are supposed to interact, and she is overstepping almost all of them, okay? So she comes sort of blubbering at his feet, crying, uh, begging him. She, she's, um, she's kind of overstepping her bounds of what it, would, what it should look like to confront a well-known and respected Jewish rabbi, sobbing all over the place. Then there's the actual reason that she's come to Jesus for help. Her daughter is possessed by an unclean spirit, a demon. So on almost every level, this interaction should be offensive and off-putting to Jesus. A foreign woman approaching a respected rabbi, begging him to interact with an unclean spirit on her behalf. It would have been easy for Jesus to dismiss her out of hand, to say, look, honey, I'm on vacation. I'll, I'll call you next week, right? But, in fact, that's exactly the advice that her disciples Jesus' disciples gave Jesus. When we read this story in Matthew, we read that the disciples said, send her away. She's crying out after us. In other words, this is getting a bit embarrassing, right? Can we get on with what we are going to do today? But Jesus engages. And so with this in mind, listen to Jesus' shocking words to her. So picking up in verse 26, she begged him to cast the demon out of her. And then Jesus' words in verse 27, he said to her, let the children be fed first for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, what comes after that is a long, awkward silence. What did Jesus just say? Did he just call me a dog? I mean, think of all the ways that she can take offense to Jesus' words right there. How would you hear this? You just put yourself out there begging Jesus for help, and he says, why would I give you food? Um, We give that to the kids. We don't throw it to the dogs. How would you hear that? This Jesus guy is a jerk, maybe. Um, Was that a racial insult, maybe? Uh, I should not have put myself out there like that. I knew this was a bad idea, maybe. Or maybe I knew this was a bridge too far. He is a respected rabbi. I'm a foreigner. This is exactly what I thought would happen. I shouldn't have gone here. How would you respond if you hear this? But here's what's so amazing about this interaction is she sees what kind of reply this is immediately. The second it's out of his mouth, she understands that this is a challenge and an invitation all at once. Okay, she sees that it's harsh on the surface but deeply kind underneath immediately. Do you see it? Do you see what she saw? See, this isn't an insult. This is a parable. Jesus is talking in metaphors to explain a spiritual truth. And she saw this right away. Jesus is telling a parable about the spiritual family that he's gathering to himself by talking about an actual family and the way it functions. He's basically saying to her, look, you're a parent. I know you would do anything for your little girl. In fact, that's the very reason you're here, isn't it? You love her dearly. 
You'd do anything for her. And so you know, just like I know, that you don't feed household pets before you feed your own kids. There's an order to the way families work. There's, a, there's an order that responsible parents follow. It's kids first, and then it's puppies. So what's the challenge? And what's the invitation in these words from Jesus? Here's the challenge. The challenge is he is looking this woman in the eye after she's thrown herself out there, been vulnerable, begged him for help, and he's saying, you're not a child at God's table, are you? You don't actually deserve this thing that you're asking of me, do you? I mean, this access that you want from me, the power of my grace that's available for the world, um, that's not actually yours to demand. That's not yours by right. You're not a kid that sits at my table that gets anything of mine just because you ask. You're an outsider to God's people. You don't deserve that kind of response. The healing power of my grace can't be demanded. It can't be assumed. It can't be earned. And he's asking her, challenging her, do you accept that naturally you are not a child at God's table? Do you accept that you don't belong by right in God's presence? One reason I think Mark puts this story right on the heels of the interactions that he just had with the Pharisees and the scribes in verses 1 through 23 of chapter 7, the passage we looked at last week, is because this is exactly the thing that they didn't understand. Right? This is exactly, they thought they could belong in God's presence by right. They thought they deserved to request and demand things of God because of their behavior, because of their religious output. They thought they had earned it. So there's a challenge here in Jesus' parable for this woman and for us this morning. Do you think, for whatever reason, that you deserve God's love, his healing, his forgiveness, his grace, that it's his job to give you what you want? I mean, he's God. We all know he's loving, so he has to do the thing for me that I need, right? Like God owes us something? Jesus is seeing if this woman and we suffer from the same religiosity that those um, he just came from, or he's seeing if she and we realize that we have no rights to claim before God, no achievements to stand on, that we don't deserve anything by virtue of who we are that we're actually the dogs in this story and not the kids who have rights at the table. Not only are we the creation of his hands, so in that way, he, I mean, he made us. He owns us. He can do whatever he wants with us, right? He created us. He's the author of life. But then we went on to rebel against our very creator by going off to try and find meaning and hope and life and satisfaction and happiness in any other place that we think it would be available to us except for the one place we were created to find it. We're created rebels with no rights before this God. That's the challenge. The challenge is do you accept your diagnosis, right? The diagnosis we talked about last week, but there's also an invitation. Here's the invitation in this challenge. She says, okay, I'm not a child at the table by right or by behavior, but I also haven't been kicked out of this house just yet, have I? Uh, I'm still sort of here on the side. I'm still present. You haven't rejected me. 
There are two words for dog in the Greek language. I'm not a Greek scholar. I read people who are Greek scholars, and they tell me there's two words for dog in the Greek language. And one of them was the sort of household pet, kind of uh, what you would call Fido, the beloved family dog. And the other was the insulting, derogatory sort of word for dog. And Jesus here is calling her Fido. He's calling her the beloved household pet. Uh, She's still in the house, even though she's not a child sitting at the table. So this is what she hears from Jesus. Accept that you have no right to approach me like this, but if you do accept that your avenue to me is not by effort or work or virtue, that it's an avenue of grace, then that avenue is still open for you. Do you want to walk further down it? Do you want to press into this relationship with me? The option is yours. It's a challenging invitation. How will she respond? Well, this woman, um, her response is, is actually amazing. Uh, so let me just read it for you first, verse 28. She says, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat at the children's um, crumbs. Now, amazingly, this woman, she not only accepts the diagnosis that Jesus gives her on the fly, but she's actually the only person recorded in the Gospels that understands one of Jesus' parables the first time he says it, okay? Even his disciples, Jesus tells these parables, and then his disciples kind of huddle him up afterwards. They're like, great story, Jesus, you're awesome. What in the world are you talking about, okay? Like, they do that every single time he tells a parable. This woman needs no explanation, She gets the parable immediately, and then she responds from within the parable itself. Okay, the amount of faith and humility and boldness and, like, acceptance that she has all in this little response is actually amazing. She says, yes, I'm unfit to sit at God's table. I know that. I'm not here standing on my rights. None of us are fit to be there. I'm the dog. I realize I don't deserve the access I'm asking for, but I'm going to go ahead and ask for it anyway. By presenting, by presenting her needs so boldly and clearly, she looks Jesus in the eye and she says, I don't deserve it, but I know there is more than enough bread at your table to feed your family and anyone else in the world who comes to ask for it. Um, I am asking you to get spiritually dirty to make my daughter spiritually clean, and I know you can do it, and that's why I'm here. There's this old story, I don't know if it's true, um, of Alexander the Great, this legend, the, the great Greek conqueror and one of the wealthiest rulers to ever live. I mean, he owned, or he, he reigned over a region from, you know, basically England to India. And, um, and this region, and so he's one of the wealthiest rulers ever, and there's a story of a general of his who comes to him one day and says, hey, my my daughter is getting married, um, and I'd like to ask you for some money so I can throw her a great wedding. And Alexander says, great, you've been an amazing general. Uh, What do you need? And then the next words out of this general's mouth are kind of outrageous. I mean, the sum that he asked for is like astronomical, like embarrassing, okay? So he's asking for an unbelievable amount of money. And when he says the number, everybody with perks up and is like, oh boy, uh, what's Alexander going to say to this one? Um, And so the the story goes that instead of reacting with anger or skepticism or um, being offended at at the size of the ask of his general, Alexander's face beamed and he was filled with joy. Why? 
Well, people asked him, why, why were you so happy? And he gave the man the money. He gave him more. He said, throw a great party. Um, people asked him, why were you so happy when he asked you for such a ridiculous amount of money? And Alexander's answer was because his ask, his question, his request communicated two things. He thinks I'm incredibly wealthy, and he thinks I'm incredibly generous. And I'm honored by an ask like that. This woman is asking Jesus, not because she thinks she deserves it, but because she knows he is incredibly wealthy and incredibly generous. And this is exactly the very definition of faith according to the Bible. It's exactly how Jesus wants us to approach him. When Matthew records the same story, he writes that Jesus actually says, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you desire. And Jesus is shocked. He says, wow, that's the answer. That's the way to approach me. That's exactly how to come to me with bold, humble asks. Humble because we know we don't deserve it. We're not there standing on our rights. But bold because we know Jesus is that good and that generous and that rich. His grace is extravagantly rich. This woman is putting God's word, his character, his promises to the test. She's um, making him live up to what he has promised through who he is. She's living in a way that only makes sense if his promises are actually true. But here's the thing. This woman, she um, had very little to go on when she was approaching Jesus, right? I mean, we don't really know how she's heard of him. Maybe a story maybe a rumor, maybe a whisper of what Jesus is really like. She had a thread of a story to go on, but she could discern his character, and she boldly and humbly approached him. Think of how much more you and I have to go on today about what Jesus really is like. I mean, we have the complete, reliable, historical, accurate word of God that tells us who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's accomplished in this world, and all of the promises that fill its pages. I mean, we have this confident record, this testimony of who this man is. Just consider just a sampling of the promises, the certain promises from Jesus we have in this book. I mean, when you're lonely, do you believe that Jesus really, I will never forsake you and I will always be with you? Like, is that, is that a promise that you have at hand to rely on and trust in and humbly yet boldly press Jesus on? Like, make him live up to his word. Are you really with me, Jesus? Or when you're fighting sin, do you really believe that God has told us in his word that he is faithful and he will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear and we can actually stand up to temptations when they come our way? When you are tempted to look for pleasure and happiness and comfort in this world, do you believe the promise from Jesus that he says, I have come that you may have joy, and not just joy, but joy to the max, joy to the full? I mean, these are God's certain words. And he's telling us in this story, this, with this woman, that he wants us to hold him to his word, Right? To come to him and say, we know you're rich in grace. We know you're generous. Pour out your gifts to me. You've promised to do so. I want them. Not on the basis of our standing, but on the basis of his love, his grace, 
and his generosity. That's the challenging invitation of this interaction. She does this, and he calls her faith great. And then what happens? What happens when we approach Jesus with faith like that? What are the results of faith? Just a couple here I want to point out as we close our time. The first is a renewed relationship. Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, says it's not until this woman admits that she's a dog under the table that she's actually invited to be a child at the table. Okay, she wasn't offended at God's hard words to her about who she was and what her diagnosis was. She received the conviction. She received the rebuke. She confessed her sin, her need. She says, I'm not worthy. And in that confession, she entered into a whole new relationship with Jesus on the basis of his grace, not her work. Another thing we see is healing. Verse 29, for this statement, you go your way, the demons left your daughter. She went home and found the child laying in bed and the demon gone. Jesus doesn't even have to be in the same room as somebody or the same region as somebody to miraculously transform their life. Jesus can bring life and health and salvation to anyone at any time, anywhere that we are in the world. No one is too far outside of his gracious intervention. That includes you. That includes anyone you know. Don't discount anybody, okay? Don't discount anyone as too far gone, too sinful, too indifferent, too unresponsive, too filled with guilt or shame, too filled with doubt. No one is too far from God's redeeming, saving hand. And practically, I mean, getting down to it, I just wonder if we pray for anything like this woman prays for her daughter, right? I mean, there is a, there is a desperation but at the same time, a conviction that Jesus can do something about it, right? I mean, do you pray for anybody else like this woman prays for her daughter? What if each of us in this room picked one person that right now doesn't know the saving love of Christ and prayed for them once a day? I mean, what might happen? It literally takes three seconds. Dear Jesus, we, I love so-and-so. Would you please um, enter their life with your grace? What would happen if all of us committed to pray for a friend like this woman prays for her daughter? Let's see. Last one. Because this woman's faith, the gospel spreads. Um, This interaction between this bold, faithful woman and Jesus, it's actually the first time in Jesus' ministry that his kingdom of grace spills beyond the borders of national ethnic Israel. This woman is sort of like a first sign. She's that first little bud on the tree that guarantees spring is here and that soon that whole tree is going to be popping with color and smell and life and fragrance in just a short time. It was always God's intention that the gospel, his kingdom, his love would spill beyond Israel. Uh, We knew that before Israel was even a nation. He told that to Abraham, here's my plan. Uh, I'm going to make you a nation. That nation is going to be a gift to all nations. But the plan kind of got, people didn't know how it was going to happen, right? They didn't know how this this, this kingdom of God was going to spread until Jesus, Israel's true son, begins to spread that kingdom beyond the bounds of that nation. And that hope and that salvation and that relationship with God are experienced not just by one group of people, but by everybody. 
Jesus even promises his people in Acts 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth, right? To the very Roaring Fork Valley in 2018 in the middle of the Western Slope in Colorado, a place I'd never even heard of uh, eight months ago before I got a call to come be the pastor here. It turns out the kingdom has already spread here, okay? Because Jesus' promises are always true, aren't they? We can bank on them. And even though the gospel has spread geographically to almost every region of the world, there are so many nooks and crannies that it still needs to seep into to bring health and life, right? There are despairing hearts, there are broken families, there are hurting bodies, there are sinful souls, even here in this valley. And he is asking his people to continue to extend the healing and love of his kingdom. The gospel goes forward because Jesus brings it. You don't deserve the riches of this table, but stand up and receive it. That's the message of our interaction this morning. The bread of the gospel, the promises of God, sealed, guaranteed for you for eternity, bought with his blood, secured with his resurrection, given to you for free. My prayer is that this church will continue to extend the gifts of that meal to more and more hungry people as we encounter them. So let's pray that right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for the, uh, the beautiful and bold faith of this woman, our great-great-great-grandma in the faith. Um, Jesus, she has uh, accepted her diagnosis from you, but even more than that, she has accepted your promises of life and love to her. We pray that that would also define all of our hearts and define our very church. We ask these things in your name. Amen.